Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Josh Dines, sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. Dines was a senior author of the paper titled Decreased Trunk Rotation at Foot Contact in Professional Baseball Players with Prior Conservatively Managed Superior Labral Anterior and Posterior Tears a Propensity Score Matched Analysis is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome Dr. Dines and thanks for joining me. Justin, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is exciting. Certainly, we have a lot to learn, and uh, especially as young uh, surgeons are excited to hear what you have to say about slap tears and these throwers. So it was, a, it was a large amount of work, certainly, to coordinate all these professional pitchers and a lot of data to sift through. So congratulations on that. And tell us a little bit about how kind of this, this started and a little summary of your findings for us. Sure. No, um, you know, first, I have you know, thank my co-authors particularly I mean, that's it's always the case you know this is not a you know research in orthopedics or medicine in general it's not kind of a you know, a one-man sport or, or one woman sport it's a team effort but particularly with regards to the work we're doing kind of in throwing athletes you know joe manzi was the lead author on this uh beamer Carr, uh kyle coons all are, have been involved we've kind of put together a good team of people who are interested and hardworking, uh who want to hopefully decrease injuries in throwers prevent them get them back more quickly uh, and we've put a lot of work in, but really, I think a ton of credit goes to Joe Manzi, who's really taken the lead here. So I want to thank them. And to your point, look, it has been a lot of work to coordinate, but but that gets back to the team that I just thanked. We've also been fortunate enough to have access to the data from uh, from MODIS, which is a, a device that a lot of professional teams uh, use to track throwing and, and stresses across the elbow. Uh, and they, they've done a great job of compiling data and you know it was a lot to sift through but once we expressed an interest they've been very sort of open with sharing it so that we could ask good questions and hopefully you know hopefully start start answering them so with all that being said i know that was long-winded this study and again we've, we've done a bunch and they're each in and of themselves are, are pretty granular uh maybe even a bit esoteric if you're not very interested in this topic maybe we're, we're dorks about it but this one was looking at trunk rotation at uh, foot contact in professional baseball pitchers comparing those who had, you know, had prior conservatively managed slap tears uh, and, and matched them with controls. Uh, we had 26 professional pitchers with slap tears or rotator cuff injury of anywhere from one to four years prior to the study uh, and matched them four to one with non-injured professional pitchers. We then used motion capture, which again, I have to thank the MODIS team for supplying that, had these pitchers throw fastballs uh, and then looked at, you know, a variety of of different, you know, sort of parameters. We used, just to give a little background, basically it was, you know, 42 reflective markers were placed on different anatomical landmarks had, as had been previously described. And then we use an eight camera Raptor e-motion analysis system, which, you know, just gives, to your point, a ton of data. The key here was, again, comparing the, the pictures with prior shoulder injury to those without. Uh, and looking at our outcomes, we found that you know, and we'll discuss whether this was surprising or not, that overall there were no differences uh, when looking at kinematics, though this, the slap subgroup did have less trunk rotation and foot contact. So the rotator, when we looked, you know, at overall injuries in, in professional pitchers compared to the other group, no differences. But when we broke out the slap tear group, uh, that was where we did start to see some differences as in that they had less trunk rotation at foot contact. And, you know, we can obviously start discussing cause and effect here, association, or however you want to go with it. But that was really the main take-home of this paper. Yeah, it's pretty interesting for sure. And um, like you mentioned, I was curious how uh, you were able to get all this data from so many high-level throwers. So that's excellent. 
One one question I had, uh, you know, this is obviously an elite. You know, group, I'm sorry to interrupt, Justin. Yeah, you go know, ahead. Interesting is, I think as you know, just where where sports science is now, I think previously, you know, the players almost wouldn't want to do these things or participate. It was almost kind of, you know, bury your head in the sand. You wouldn't want to find anything wrong. Now, I think they're very appreciative of of metrics, and this is just another you know metric that they can use to hopefully get themselves better. So I you know years ago we had a hard time recruiting people for studies like these. I think it's actually become a little easier as the players and the coaches and the teams and medical staffs have gained an appreciation for the data that is gleaned from them. Yeah, they want that data and to be able to yeah. appreciate. Yeah, that's great. Do you think uh, these these uh, findings you found are applicable to a less elite group? Uh, you know that. A lot of us more commonly see, or do you think this is a specific um, finding in this professional cohort? That's a great question because that, that's something we always struggle with, you know, because you want to do studies that are sort of clinically relevant. And and look, to be honest, look, I work with professional baseball players, but the overwhelming majority of the baseball players that I treat or evaluate are not the professional level. It's the high school, little league, college group. So, uh, you know, I, I, we we wrestle with this all the time. I think on a certain level. You know, some of the stresses that you see and some of the, the injuries that we see uh, or some of the kinematic findings that we've seen in some of our studies maybe only apply at the higher levels because they're just generating much more force. They're throwing harder. So some of these things may not even click in at a much lower level. The flip side is one of the benefits is that when you're a professional baseball pitcher, I think, you know, if you've, you've done a lot to be able to throw 95 or 97 miles an hour. At a certain point, it's almost harder to change some of the mechanics if there are big mechanical flaws than you can if you if you identify these early and younger athletes in 14 or 15 year olds before they've gotten so accustomed to throwing a certain way. So I think you could spin it either way, and it's probably case dependent. But I think at least you know doing these studies in the high level athletes uh, you know gives us you know something to look for in these lower level athletes, and some may translate, others may not. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Certainly, that's the the best way to start. I think these elite people they're much more. Uh comparable than, you know, a kind of a random other group. One thing you mentioned just before I, I think was interesting is that is this an issue that we're having um, uh, after surgery or is the slap tear uh, the one causing this? Because as you mentioned that there's been other studies showing decreased turn quotation after slap repairs, which is basically what you found in your study. Can you give us your thoughts of, about those? Is it slap tear itself or the repair causing these issues? It, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, the the honest answer is that we probably don't have enough data. It's probably, you know, there's probably some places where it causes it, some cases where it's associated. Um, it, you know, kind of do, to do these sort of prospective randomized control studies, you'd have to have, you know, a ton of throwers, MRIs on everybody. Um, I think it becomes very onerous to do it, and maybe at some point we'll be able to. But I think, you know, one of the, and as you mentioned, our findings were, were similar to previous studies. I think sometimes it is, it's probably is the slap repair. I mean, it's a hypothesis, but one of the things that we put out in our discussion um, is that, and this may get to something that we discussed later in the talk or the podcast, you know, previously when we were, if you look at the study, for instance, by Lachlan, they, you know, they looked at slap repairs. If you, you know, when, when this was published, obviously that's a follow-up of slap repairs that were done years prior. If we look how we used to repair slap repairs when I was a resident, you know, 10, 12 years, 12 years ago, We'd have an anchor at the anterior aspect of the biceps, at the posterior aspect of the biceps. We'd probably overconstrain them. And I think as we've learned more, um, we know that that would probably, if you did that, if we have these anterior anchors um, that, you know, at, at the biceps anchor, that may decrease shoulder external rotation and have some other effects. So in a case like that, it may have been the slap repair that was the issue. In others, it might be the slap tear itself that alters mechanics because 
The other thing that makes it very difficult to answer this question is that these very rarely happen solely in isolation where they only have a slap tear and nothing else in that internal impingement spectrum. Right. I think that's a great point. Uh, I work with Dr. Bradley quite a bit, and he, you know, talks certainly in, in Dr. Elitrash and uh, all the folks up at HSS about the knots and how much different the repair is now. So modern techniques really change. And I think that's, like you mentioned before, what a lot of us really want to chat with you about. Can you talk to us about your approach in evaluating a thrower or a pitcher as you, you're concerned about a slap chair, you know, your evaluation exam, injections, uh, imaging, all that? Uh, can you give us kind of your gestalt and how you approach all that? Sure. No, I mean, that's, and it starts, you know, this will sound cliche like a medical school talk, but it really does, obviously, for all your patients, but particularly for this kind of group of athletes, history, um, and not just focusing on the shoulder because, you know, look, part of, they're not going to have typical pain with activities of daily living or pain that wakes them up from sleep at night. With regards to their shoulder pain, it's really often just limiting their ability to you know, throw a baseball at the level that they're accustomed to or, or expect to be able to. But what, in the history, I think one of the things that often gets missed, uh, like if a, if a resident will come out and kind of present to me after they've seen the athlete, is what else is going on in the rest of their body? Have they had any, you know, core injuries recently, hip injuries? Did they sprain their ankle recently? These are kind of little things that, you know, may cause and alter, you know, that, that may affect the kinetic chain, alter their mechanics. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody who's been throwing a baseball for years now changes their mechanics a little bit. And that's when we see kind of the, you know, the wheels come off. Um, and then you get an MRI, which I'll get to in a second, but then you see all these findings that have probably been there for years, but one thing was the straw that broke the camel's back. So I think the history is critical, um, figure out where their pain is. Um, and obviously, you know, it's not just the history alone where you're gonna be able to make the diagnosis. I then go into the physical exam. And just like I said, with the history, it's not just about the shoulder. We wanna really do kind of a thorough exam of the kinetic chain. You know. Look at their core strengths, scapular mechanics. Obviously, you know, Jim Bradley's done a ton on this, and as has Ben Kibler, um, and I've learned a lot from, from them and, and people you mentioned. Neil Elitrosh is, you know, my, one of my mentors. So they are so thorough at both their history and their physical exam. Uh, and, again, it, it's not thorough because of what they do with the shoulder. It's because of everything else. So I think looking at the scapula um, is critical. Shoulder-wise, there's enough data that shows that no test is perfect. So for me, when I'm, you know, worried in a thrower – it's going to be range of motion, uh, and obviously we look at shoulder internal and external rotation. Also, uh, Chris Camp did great work when he, he's now at Mayo, but when he was and the doctor for the Twins, but when he was with us in fellowship and worked with the Mets, he looked at you know kind of seven years of that, and we found that forward elevation was also predictive of, of shoulder and elbow injury as well. Lack of forward elevation in these throwers. So obviously Gerd gets a you know gets the, the headline, but total range of motion, forward elevation is important. So I always start with that. Test their rotator cuff strengths because, as I mentioned, a lot of these injuries don't happen in isolation. They may have some, a slap tear, but also rotator cuff pathology uh, or other internal impingement type symptoms. With regards to the slap, you know, there's, I'll do an O'Brien's test or an active compression test. I think, you know, Steve had great results with that test. A lot of, I, I don't know if it's a perfect test, but I also see people who say that it's not great, don't do it correctly. So, you know, you really have to make sure you get the arm adducted across the body. And what I'll do, uh, and Steve has been kind enough to call it the Dines modification because uh, my dad and I described this test to him, but basically have the athlete put the, the backs of their hands together in front of their body. And by doing that, by touching them, you at least put the arm in the appropriate amount of adduction, and then you can test, do the, the active compression test on both arms. So you see a side-to-side -side difference as well. So I always do that. I'll do an overhead valgus stress test or a dynamic labral shear test. Um, I'll put them in the apprehension position. I'll do a Kim test. I'll palpate the biceps. 
uh, in the bicipital groove. I'll have them do a throwing test where they basically put their arm in a throwing position and you resist them as they try to come forward. And all of these together, again, I don't think any of these are perfect, um, but I think taking, you know, as a, as a gestalt, it'll give you some idea of, of what's going on, whether the labrum is involved uh, or not. And then look, honestly, a lot of it is then gonna come down to the imaging studies as well. And I, I do always get an MRI at HSS. We typically, we, we do not get it with contrast. Um, if, if I'm gonna see a person who can't go to HSS or an imaging place that I trust, uh, or know is going to be of a good quality exam, I'll have them do it with intraarticular dye. But if we can avoid that, I just think that's one less, you know, if you can get a good image without doing that, I think that benefits the player because if you do inject them with dye, they're out of commission for a couple of days anyway. So I avoid the MRI with dye uh, if possible. And then, you know, we, we kind of have a, a, a diagnosis or a working diagnosis, and we'll try to figure out what's, what's relevant, what's clinically relevant. I think yeah, and I know I'm getting long-winded, so if you want to cut me off at any point, we can get a little more granular on any of the things I mentioned, or I can just keep going. I think it's great. You know, I think evaluating these people and deciding who needs surgeries is the the pearl that we want to know. So, like you're mentioning injections, and I think keep talking. This is perfect. Thanks. Okay. So, I think, you know, let's, focusing, obviously, the focus here is slap tears, and I, I give John Conway, you know, a ton of credit because, you know, he, he's he's unbelievably thoughtful one of the smartest people I know, particularly as it pertains to kind of injuries and throwing athletes. And he's, he gave a great talk that I've, you know, kind of got back to frequently on the difference between good and bad slaps. And, you know, all slap tears aren't the same. Look, we see these degenerative type two slap tears in older patients all the time. And, and those you know, several studies have shown respond well to a biceps tenodesis and, and they're, they're not really, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. I think when we talk about kind of the good slap versus bad slap in throwers, the good slap is that, purposeful sort of, you know, adaptation that allows for, you know, increased mobility, increased horizontal abduction, uh, which will hopefully translate to increased velocity and performance. Unfortunately, those good slaps or, or sort of ad adaptations or, or, you know, sort of adapted slaps can progress to pathology. And that's when it becomes that bad slap. And that's that pathologic process, um, you know, that, that now all of a sudden you're, you're getting sort of pathologic translation and, and instability that's causing pain and loss performance. So, you know, Kevin Wilk described that thrower's paradox when you're fixing, you know, anterior instability or micro instability anteriorly where you want to make them, you know, loose enough to throw up, but, you know, not too loose where they're, you know, it becomes pathologic. And we see the same thing with slap tears where the good slap allows for improved performance. The bad slaps are going to cause loss performance and, and pain. And I think, you know, the exam is one of the issues. Getting an MRI on somebody who's asymptomatic or you're looking for somebody else and they have a slap tear but no positive exam findings, that's probably going to be the good slap. The bad slap are the ones who, you know, their history, you're, you're thinking slap tear, their exam, you're thinking slap tear, and then you see one on, on MRI, that's probably going to be kind of the bad actor. You mentioned injections, though, and that's another good way to, you know, start kind of honing in on, on where the pathology is truly coming from. While this group doesn't typically get outlet impingement, a subacromial injection with, you know, with some lidocaine uh, could, could be beneficial. Also, injecting the biceps tunnel under ultrasound to see how much pain that relieves, I think could be beneficial as well. So I do use selective injections to help me sort of, you know, further that distinction between a good slap and a bad slap. And then if it's the good slap, you know, uh, we, you know we're pro probably not doing anything. If it's a bad slap, then we go down a whole different sort of treatment pathway. Yeah, that's excellent. That's great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, you treat these people non-operatively and how you, you know, attempt it? It really seems like having a, a good therapist that um, 
can really work on their GERD. Like you mentioned, their kinetic change is just essential. Tell me how long you work with these people and how long you, you know, try to avoid surgery because I know our outcomes after slap tears, maybe some of it's dated techniques, but they're still not as great as we, we wish, I think. I know I agree with that wholeheartedly. So I think it's critical, you know, and as you mentioned, you're, you're kind of a couple years in practice. It's critical to have a good relationship with the physical therapist in your area. And not every one of them is going to be everything to everybody. I think, you know, I've got a few, you know, in New York City and a few on Long Island who are great with throwers. And I tell people, you know, patients all the time that, look, I know it's a little bit of a further drive, but it's worthwhile because if we can get a good physical therapist to work with these athletes early and, and save them from surgery, that's priceless. So I think you, you want to have a good relationship with a physical therapist who's knowledgeable about the area, who can speak the language you're, you're speaking, uh, who's not afraid to communicate so that you're, you're constantly in touch, seeing how these athletes are pro- progressing because what you don't want to have happen, and look, it, it sometimes takes, you know, six weeks, three months to get them to where they're, you know, kind of going to be start throwing at a high level again. But you also don't want to get to the three-month mark. There's been no progress made for the last eight weeks. And that's somebody that may have needed surgery earlier. And now you've delayed their ultimate recovery because you alluded to the fact that the results are not great or outstanding with slap repairs uh, when we do these arthroscopically. It's also a long recovery. So to not get a great outcome with a long recovery is is probably, you know, the worst scenario. So I think good physical therapist who's thoughtful, who understands the kinetic change, who can address all the, the range of motion deficits strength deficits and get them on a good, you know, who also has a a good understanding of throwing mechanics. So when they start the throwing program, there's somebody looking at them, uh, I think is a huge benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you talk to us about the kinematic analysis that you use, um, you know, say operative, non-operative treatment, you know, when you're getting your professional athletes or more, you know, lower level athletes, are you using any of these markers or, you know, having your your physical therapist, you know, do video analysis or any special tips getting these guys back to, to throwing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the, at the high level, and this is, you know, kind of what we talked about earlier, the high level, they have access to all that. So we've got a ton of metrics. So they're going to be, when they resume throwing, they're going to have the modus sleeve on so we can track torque at their elbow. If it's a Tommy John surgery, for instance, we're going to have a radar gun, you know, with every throw so that we know that they're real, you know, we know that they're kind of, we know their maximum velocity. We know what 75% should be. So you can get very granular as you guide them through their throwing program. I think, uh, again, we've got video analysis. You've got track mans and, and with spin rates, and you can, you can get so much data at the high level. Unfortunately, we don't have that same access at the lower level, and that's where it is different. So that's when you really need to, I think, look, you know, some of these places have that, but you can't assume that all the athletes will have access to that. And that's when I think you need a really good, you know, just physical therapist who could just, you know, use their eyes and has worked with a lot of these players to see, hopefully kind of address some some inconsistencies or, or bad mechanics early before, you know, kind of goes down a bad path again. Right. For sure. One thing that I uh, struggle with, and I think others do, or, um, you know, sports specialization, especially with throwers and baseball players. Can you talk to us about how you, you know, discuss the issue with the parents? You know, a lot of these kids, even with UCL injury, slap shoulder issues, internal impingement, what have you, um, shutting them down and talking about sports specialization and being a, an issue with these injuries, overuse injuries? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really a problem. And obviously, we're not the first to talk about it. And I think as it pertains to baseball, it's almost something that we used to see, you know, I did my fellowship in California, you know, in Texas, Florida, places like that, where it was warm, you'd see, you know, these kids playing baseball all year. We were almost spared from that, you know, in Pittsburgh, where you are, I'm in New York, where it's cold, and they play hockey or, or you know, basketball in the winter, they do a different sport just by the nature of where they live. Unfortunately, now there's indoor academies everywhere. There's such a, you know, 
a premium placed on being able to throw hard and get a pitching coach so you can get a college scholarship um, that we're, we're seeing a ton of overuse injuries due to sports specialization. So injuries that you used to see kind of in older athletes, you're now seeing at a much younger age, and it's really a problem. You know, look, every study would show that it's better for kids, you know, socially, physically, athletically to play a variety of different sports. So I, I, it's, but to get the parents to buy in, it's tough, you know, and, and I, what, you know, look, you've had the same benefit by training out at Pittsburgh and, you know, Stedman, or where you get, you know, access or, or where you see the highest level athletes, which then I think helps when you talk to the patient, to the parents of kids who are 14 and 15, you say, look, you know, I've treated these high level athletes, kept them out of the, you know, to use a tennis player example, the French Open or Wimbledon. And, you know, we can keep your son out of ninth grade little league for six weeks. You know, you have to give them some perspective that this is not the end all be all, but it is a hard discussion. And sometimes, you know, the parents are often crazier than the kids, as you know. So it's a tough discussion. I tried, you know, I've got no, you know, foolproof way to deal with it. You got to read the room and, and really kind of try to, you know, give them a point that, that hits home. So for me, I find what works often is giving a very high level athlete example of somebody that we've worked with and, and talked about, hey, you kept them out and, and long term, it's been much better for them. Sometimes that resonates, sometimes it doesn't, but it's worth a try. That's a good good point, good advice. So talking back before how you mentioned about, you know, how, how the older techniques with slap repairs and some of our newer techniques, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And do you think our outcomes with more modern techniques uh, with knotless and not incarcerating the biceps and, you know, not being on the face or grabbing capsule? Can you talk to us about that and in your thoughts uh, regarding, you know, outcomes more recently? And then give us kind of your pearls. Have you seen stiffness? Are you doing Tino DCs in any of these throwers? Uh, any of your thoughts about surgical technique and outcomes would be great. Absolutely. So it's a great question. I think I, now I'm, I'm getting old in practice, so I've, I've had the benefit to kind of see how things have changed. And you, you know, you highlighted, I remember when I was a, a resident, um, you know, kind of 2006, 2007, one of the projects uh, that a co-resident of mine did was looking at slap repairs and they used, we used one anchor at about 12 o'clock right under the biceps and it was double loaded. So you put one suture just anterior, one suture just posterior. And these were the slap repairs. They thought that was great. It was efficient. Um, it was a strong construct. Uh, and then you look at, to your point, the results of the outcome of slap repairs and throwers using techniques such as that. And they were not great, to say the least. And if they had any other pathology, they were even worse. So as I mentioned earlier, it's very rare that you just see an isolated slap. If you do and you repair it well, and I'll talk about what I think goes into a, a good repair, um, the results are actually pretty good. But once you start getting partial thickness cuff tears, you know, over-constraining the biceps, as you mentioned, it's really going to be a setup for failure because then they will be stiff. It's, they're, they're not going to be able to, you know, you almost take that, you, know, you want to repair it back to a good slap, as I described earlier, not a bad slap. And if you over-constrain them or you don't make it tight enough, then you run that risk. The, the other thing we used to do is, tie, you know, we used suture anchors and tied knots um, and we made, you know, it was stable. But then there, you know, everybody who gives talks on these has pictures to show of those knot stacks really kind of abrading the undersurface of the cuff, uh, which caused its own problem. So I think, you know, really what I've learned over the last kind of 10, 12 years, I use knotless anchors, particularly for slap tears. I really very rarely will put an anchor anterior to the biceps so as not to over-constrain it. Now, if they have a, uh, you know, if it extends inferiorly anteriorly, okay, maybe I'll put one at, you know, to use a, a left shoulder as an example, maybe put it at sort of three o'clock, I'm sorry, nine o'clock, but I don't want to go up to sort of, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock anteriorly. Now, if you go posteriorly around the back, that's where I, I tend to put more anchors now. I think a lot of these are what, like what, what your mentor, Jim Bradley, would describe as kind of these 2B slaps that extend posteriorly. So 
as I've put less anchors anteriorly, I definitely tend to put more anchors posteriorly. Again, using a knotless technique and also sort of copying John Conway, you, I'll almost try to repair that, you know, sort of recreate that sort of meniscoid superior labrum. So, uh, you know, just to try to best recreate the anatomy uh, that I can. And I think as we do that, look, the, the proof's going to be in the pudding. We'll have to see, you know, using these newer techniques. Now we're going to have to wait a few years for follow-up, but it's my estimation that the results will be better. The two things I will say, though, one is when you talk about baseball players or throwers in general, you know, the results are not the same as they are in the general population when you talk about, you know, fixing a clavicle fracture where somebody's going to have a 98% great outcome. This is, this is a tough group. There's a variety of reasons why they don't go back to playing at their previous level. We see the same thing with Tommy John surgery. So I think we'll never get, hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong, but it'll be hard pressed to get people back to 100% return to play for, you know, for other issues. But I think having a better understanding of the anatomy and not over constraining the biceps with modern techniques, you know, is really going to give them the best chance. In terms of biceps tenodesis, I, I do it occasionally. Rarely in this group, I, don't, I think now that I have a better appreciation of how to do kind of what I would sort of classify as a good slap repair, that's my go-to, unless they truly have bicipital groove symptoms or their biceps looks like crap. Because if you look at, you know, Tony Romeo's work, the results of biceps tenodesis in this group were not great either, you know. So I, I think it just highlights the fact that nothing is perfect. It's really going to have to be individualized based on the athlete, based on their exam, based on where their symptoms are, and doing as good an anatomic job of repairing the pathology as possible. That's excellent. appreciate all the pearls and, and good points about the tenodesis. Certainly, it's all patient-specific. So thanks so much for sharing your results of your study and all your pearls and insights with us today, Dr. Dines. really appreciate your time. Oh, Justin, thanks so much for including me. really appreciate it. You, you've done a great job with this podcast, so I always enjoy listening to it. Thank you. Dr. Dines' article entitled Decreased Trunk Rotation at Foot Contact in Professional Baseball Players with Prior Conservatively Managed Slap Tears a Propensity Score Match Analysis is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Mm-hmm.